so good. I have to refrain from the Monday night cookies. So some of you, it was, you were here for the first time, yeah? You raise your hands who are here for the first time. So just to be clear, I am not Jack Cornfield. Uh, so I'm Conda Mason and standing in for Jack. Um, yeah, these Monday nights have been going on for a long time and he held it down for many, many years, just Jack. And, uh, and then it's been called now Jack and Friends. And so I'm a friend. So I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm really happy you're here. And um, I like to um, begin with a little story that has a moral to it. Um, So here's the story. A woman saw a bug floundering around in the water. She decided to save it by stretching out her finger, but the bug stung her. The woman still tried to get the bug out of the water, but it stung her again. On seeing this, her friend told her to stop trying to save the bug that kept stinging her. But the woman said, It is the nature of the bug to sting. It is my nature to love. Why should I give up my nature to love just because it is the nature of the bug to sting. So the moral of that story, as I see it, is don't give up your goodness. Don't give up your goodness of who you really are. There's so much pressure in the world to give up our goodness and to go with the flow of other people's activities and what they say and do, even though your heart may be saying to do something differently. We absolutely spend a lot of time giving up our goodness and not tuning in to our own heart, to the message that our hearts are telling us. Because our hearts have this capacity have this huge capacity to be with, to have compassion for. And so, the moral of that story, don't give up your goodness, is what I'm going to talk a little bit about here. Because within us there is so much innate goodness. It comes with the territory of being a human being. And if we can only uncover it and choose it and act from that, the world would be very different. If we lived by our own moral compasses that comes through and then often the mind overrides it. How many times has that happened to you where you thought that that first impulse was something loving, something caring, and then the mind says, oh, I can do that for whatever reason. And you walk away maybe from a situation and you think, I didn't do that. Or I did do that. Whatever it might be. 
And so living consistently with our values is extremely hard. It's really hard to do because it's not the norm. I, I do some work in the world. Um, I'm in Oakland and I do some work in the world. I have a business called Impact Hub Oakland. And um, I work with entrepreneurs and other people. And I also work in, um, with some people around um, the alternative economy that we're trying to create, that we need to, to create. And in that work, there's an organization out of UC Berkeley called um, the Greater Good Science Center. I don't know if any of you know the Greater Good Science Center. Their work is extraordinary. Um, and they are a science center that, that gathers data and looks at some of the things that, that, um, that we learn here. They actually prove it, right? They can prove that compassion is a natural part of human beings. They have the scientific data, the stuff that, we, that we've known deep in our hearts, and particularly a lot of indigenous um, people have lived by, they have proved a lot of these things scientifically because it seems like if it's proven scientifically, then maybe we'll, we'll believe it. So um, one of the things that they have done that, uh, that I worked with in, in a project that I did in, in Oakland, they were looking at well-being in individuals, like what makes people well, that, like what makes you whole, right? And so it didn't matter what, who you were, they looked at all demographics, all regions, all geographies, all sociopolitical um, standing, and just to find out what makes, in general, people well. What makes you whole? And they came up with these four things that make people well. The first one is connection to oneself and to purpose. When we're connected to our own purpose, we have this feeling of wellness, this feeling of wholeness. When we find that purpose and we connect to that. The second one is when we're connected to others. And we know that. I mean, we see that in babies coming into the world, touching them. I mean, we are naturally relational. Human beings are relational. And when we connect with each other, it makes us well. It makes us whole. And when we isolate what happens? We see that all the time, the isolation. And when we feel so separate, you know, the, um, I also have spent a lot of time working at, um, San Quentin with some of the inmates there. And, um, boy, the penal system has learned how to punish. They separate them. They separate them from their families they're separated from each other, and that separation makes people crazy. And that's the whole method, is separate. And so when we connect, we become well. So that connection to others is a big part of our wellness. And then the third one is when we've been generous. When we have actually done some act of generosity, it makes us well. It's not just for the other person, but it's for ourselves. And when we've been compassionate and generous, that those were the two, the two for 
compassion and generosity. It makes us really well. All beings, all humans, no matter where they live. And then the fourth one is when we're connected to something that's actually greater than ourselves. Now, it could be that feeling, when you have that feeling of awe, right? Um, It could be nature. It could be the flower that is blooming outside your door. When your plants, when the new flower shoots up, that feeling of awe. I was just in Montana this past week, in uh, Missoula, Montana, and in this drive, I'm driving on this highway, and you just see regular stuff side to side, it's beautiful. But then you crest this hill, going to my friend's house, and suddenly there's this mountain range, that you, huge mountain range that you didn't see until you crest this hill, and it's right in front of you. And it was like, what came out of my mouth is, oh my God, and it was the most beautiful mountain range. It was awe. I was struck. And they said, oh yeah, this is the oh my God. They call it the oh my God moment because everybody says that when they see it for the first time. It's, it was awe-inspiring. That, these are the things that make us well. So if you look at all those things, what it's all pointing to is when we feel the interconnection, when we feel our deepest interconnection to ourselves, to others, and to the planet. That makes us well. So what I'm going to talk about tonight, this evening, um, is framing this around the paramis. The paramis are these qualities of the heart that, you know, there's many lists, right? I I don't know many of you who know um, the Buddha's the Buddha Dharma, you know that there are many lists, the Four Noble Truths, the Five, Seven Factors of Awakening, on and on. These are the ten perfections, the paramis. And what it is, is they're the perfections of the heart, of what the heart actually, how it moves towards that which is whole. And the word paramita, is two words, paramita, and it is actually, it, it, it's pointing to beyond. It, it actually means beyond, like going beyond a boundary. Um, what it's talking about is transformation, going beyond that which is not transformed to, towards transformation. So it's a transformation of the heart. It's a trans- and transcendent action. When our heart moves us towards transcendent action. Okay. So that's the, uh, the paramis, and there are ten of them. And what they do, actually, the ten paramis, as I see it, is it, it's concerned with the effort. It takes us out of our own little crazy mind and heart that is egocentric, that egocentric mentality. That ego, it transcend, when we transcend our egocentric mentality, that actually causes often a lot of harm to ourselves and to others when we act from that. So we're, with the paramis, we're looking at them to transcend that, that part of, our, of, of this human experience and, um, and to act from that place of transcendent reality of the heart, the openness of the heart. And so my understanding is that the Buddha 
um, you know, in the 45 years between his um, enlightenment and his, his death, he talked a lot about these 10 qualities of the heart, but it wasn't until after he passed away that he died that um, they were actually codified into what we call the 10 perfections. And, um, and so, of course, no one is perfect, right? But it is a North Star. It's a North Star to, 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 to turn towards. And so I'm going to list what those ten perfections are. The first one it begins with is with generosity. Generosity of the heart. The second one is morality or virtue. One of my, um, one of my teachers... We were just, uh, I was working last week, two weeks ago with, with her, and she said um, harmony. She likes the word harmony for, for that particular virtue. So morality, virtue, or harmony. Um, the third one is renunciation. And when we think about renunciation, I mean, that's a hard word for us because it sounds like giving up something or, or depriving oneself. But it's really, it's giving up, it's letting go of, of those the clinging that actually what you gain. So it's really something that you gain from this type of renunciation. So renunciation, then there's wisdom. And that's the whole of the Dharma. The whole of the Dharma is the wisdom of the Dharma. There's energy is number five. And the, the energy that it takes to actually make the, the choice to go down a path that is wholesome. Because it's so much easier not to, right? Again, it's like you're going down the path and then it really takes energy to choose a path that is more wholesome than maybe what is habit and automatic. It's that energy to do that. Moving beyond those habits, a habitual way of thinking and acting. Patience. We know patience is really not the easy one. I know it's not easy for me. It's a real important virtue. And what patience does? Patience. This too shall pass. Right? This too shall pass. Everything's impermanent. It's not going to stay. Can we have the patience? Can we have the patience to get through and to hold ourselves in a good place? So patience is really, really important. Truthfulness. Truthfulness. That's a strange word these days. (laughs) Need I not say more? Determination. Determination. Being on a path and really sticking with it being determined, knowing that, that it takes determination. Practice. We call this practice. Why do we call it practice? Because it's practice, right? You have to practice and practice and begin again and begin again, just like sitting practice like we just did. You come back to the breath again with the determination to come back again. This whole study, this whole dharma is about beginning again and having determination without judgment, without judgment. The ninth one is loving kindness. That, that, that place in the heart that they say that when the heart quivers, that, 
that natural love that we have, loving kindness, acting from loving kindness. And the last one, number 10, is equanimity. Equanimity is honestly, the way I see it, it's like I see the Dharma as like this funnel. And there's all this stuff in the middle, and then it funnels down to equanimity. Because really, equanimity is just the ability to hold it all. It's the ability to hold it all without judgment, with balance. Holding paradox, holding all the things that happen so that we can actually not be moved and swayed by the worldly winds and just know that this too shall pass. And holding it all to equanimity. I love these paramis. And so they're just the North Star. They're a, they're a model of what we can work towards. And, you know, it's a, it's a good idea to take one at a time and, and maybe do a month on just one and see how it goes. Now, our dear friend Sylvia Bornstein, how many of you know Sylvia? If that was Sylvia? Sylvia wrote the book on the paramis. This is the Bible called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake by Sylvia Bornstein. So I've really recommended it's in the bookstore. And, um, and with her usual lightness and storytelling, it's a wonderful book. And so its idea is to, is to develop and cultivate these, these paramis, these, these perfections of the heart. And we have the capacity to do that. We, we, we absolutely have the capacity to do that. So why is it useful? Why is it important now, particularly? So I'm going to get into a little bit, but the, the dark part of my talk. But we'll come back to the light. Our society is just not living its best life right now. We are not at our best selves on many, many, many levels. I can't help but be um, deeply concerned with the collective situation that we're all facing. It's all the activities that are causing so much harm to ourselves, to each other. I think we're witnessing an unprecedented collection of interconnected systemic challenges like never, ever before. And they're all interconnected. They may seem separate, but they're not. These challenges, I'm going to just, this is, I'm going to go there and list a couple of them that we are really facing right now. That is, the first one is the wealth gap in this country and abroad. It's bigger than it's ever been, ever, and it's trending wider. Here's an alarming statistic. The average wealth in this country of a white family is $143,000. Average wealth. The average wealth of an African-American family is $11,000. $143,000. They say it will take 228 years 
for that gap to close if the White family stayed the same. It would take 228 years to close that gap. That's what we're facing. And they actually say that 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 11,000 is trending towards zero by the year 2053. Now, I don't know what that looks like. What does zero look like? This is the world that we are participating in. And yet, in this country, people of color are going to be in the majority in what they call the majority-minority country. We will be by 2044. So, wealth gap, no wealth, and the majority in the country. It's a recipe that doesn't look good. The global refugee situation. We hit a a new high of one in every 113 people on the planet are refugees. One in 113. 22.5 million refugees. Right now. And this thing called illegal human beings that I don't quite understand how a human being is illegal. And the earth, let's talk about the earth. We know what we're done, what's going on here. A couple of statistics. The, well, first, water is polluted and the lakes are drying up. I just saw something, where was it? In some magazine, and it had a story about all the major lakes all over the planet, and that were big lakes that are dried up, that are just beds, dry beds now. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. The forests are shrinking. 80% of the world's forests are gone. 80% are gone. Oil is eroding, as we know. And more than 90% of large fish in the ocean are gone. More than 90% are gone. Species extinction. And we know we only have one earth, y'all. We have one earth here. These are all systemic, interconnected challenges that we're facing. We've created institutions, we've created businesses, we've created all kinds of structures that actually thrive on the destruction of this planet. They actually are thriving. And that... it actually promotes and exploits this idea that we are separate, okay? And from each other. And as long as we accept that narrative and live into that narrative, it will continue to happen the way we will actually end up where we're headed. we didn't cooperate with that narrative, imagine what we could do. What have we been taught to value? 
this country, in our society. What we value, financial success, by any means necessary. Who has the most money? This hyper-individualism, this U.S. specialness, and our hyper-individualism, the me versus we, right? And of course, just competing to the top. And yet, that's not who we really are, remember? That compassionate, that loving, that's what's our innate characteristics. That's what our heart longs for. So, you know, you hear all this stuff, and it's like, okay, Gondo, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'm tired of hearing this, you know. We have to look at it. I mean, I'm bringing this because, I, you know, it's so easy to bypass it and just keep meditating. <laughs> you know? You could do that. You could just sit there and meditate. But I'm talking about applied dharma. We're here on this planet together to do something and to make it better. But what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It's a question. All these things seem so insurmountable, so big, so much bigger than an individual. I'm just one person. But really, it doesn't start with what do I do. It starts with who do I need to be? Who do I need to be? So we're starting from the inside and we move out. Who do I need to be and then what do I do with that? And so that's what I hope we're cultivating here is who I need to be. Because it begins with Danella Meadows is a person who has this study that she did about transformation, how systems change. And the most important lever of change in a system is the mindset that created it. The mindset that created it is the biggest lever of change. So you change the mindset, you change the system. Right? So, who do I need to be? Is the question. And then you act from that. And like my dear friend Jack Cornfield, who I'm sitting in for, he will always say, Oh, nobly born. I love it. Oh, nobly born. Do not forget who you are. We are all so nobly born. Do not forget who you are. So the paramis, this perfection of the heart, is actually who we are. So I'm going to, there's ten of them, and you know, you can do a whole series every week on one of them. Um, So instead of going by them fast, I'm just going to talk about the first two tonight. And that's generosity and morality. Because I really think that, well, all of them are super important, clearly. However, with what I was just talking about, the status, the state of the world, if we were to tweak and look at ourselves from generosity and morality standpoint, we can affect change. We make those transformations internally and, and then use them externally. 
So generosity, dana. I know you all have heard that word if you've been around Spirit Rock at all. You know the word dana. It's the Pali word, which is the language that the Buddha spoke um, for generosity. And it's interesting because it's the first of the paramis, generosity. And the Buddha talked a lot about dana and the importance of dana. The spirit of generosity is at the core of the kind of people that we want to be and the kind of world we want to create. The antithesis of what I just spoke about and how we got to where we are. It wasn't through generosity. It has not been through generosity that we have gotten to where we are. So generosity, Webster says, is the virtue of being unattached to material possessions, often symbolized by the giving of gifts. Generosity is regarded as a virtue by various world religions and is often celebrated in cultural and religious ceremonies. The antonyms are greed, stinginess, and selfishness. There was a study um, in 2017 in Zurich on generosity. And there's a lot of people studying it right now. Um, there's, yeah, there's so much being done on generosity, especially at this point in time. But this particular study, what they found is that generous people live happier lives. They live happier lives. And even if you're only a little bit generous, <laughs> you have a, a happier life than someone that is not. And people who act solely out of self-interest are less happy. You know, mine, it doesn't make you happy. And just even merely promising to be generous is enough of a trigger that the mind becomes happy. You don't even have to do it. (laughs) But do it. (laughs) You get happier. But just the thought triggers the mind into happiness. Isn't that amazing? So generosity brings happiness at every stage of its expression. At every stage. So the first stage is you experience joy in forming the intention to be generous. Just the intention, you you receive joy. Then you receive joy in the actual act of giving. And then you receive joy in the memory of the act of giving. And those three stages is where happiness and joy come up. It's a beautiful thing. It's the first, as I said, it's the first of the paramis. It's what the Buddha talks so much about. And it is the foundation of all the paramis, is generosity. You know, there's so many stories of generosity, and I have a couple that I'm going to tell. There's um, this famous, famous person in India who Gandhi actually was kind of said as would be his successor, uh, Vinoba uh, Bhavi. And Vinoba Bhavi, post-independence India, he was trying to solve the vast wealth gap, like not unlike what we have here. And so he went on this pilgrimage, on this walking pilgrimage, and he walked from village to village 
True story. He walked from Bilbisville and he asked wealthy landowners to give up a sixth of their land to the poor out of their heart of generosity. And they actually did it. They did it. He appealed to that part of their heart. This man walked 43,000 miles. It was called is the Budan Movement. You may have heard of it. Within that walk, more than 5 million acres of land was donated. It is by far the largest peaceful transfer of land in human history. Over 5 million acres. Just appealing to the heart. I mean, it sounds like, what can one person do? It's so impenetrable. And it's not. My friend Nepun Metta, I don't know if anybody knows Nepun. Nepun lives in, he has the Karma Cafe in Berkeley. He calls this, he has a phrase that he calls giftivism. Giftivism. And giftivism is the practice of radical generosity that changes the world. So that that, uh, movement would be an example of giftivism. And giftivism is when it's 100%, there's no othering, it's not about me, it's 100% about the other. Creating what I call the we economy. And as you know, the current economic system is built to maximize self-interest. But giftivism and what happened in India is just an example of some of the things that have happened on the planet. There's so many beautiful stories. I have a list of stories of, of generosity and generosity from the heart and, and all the wonderful things that, that people do. People are amazing. We're amazing. I... Um, you know, my own story of um, two years in a row back in the 90s, I guess it was, maybe it was 2000, early 2000, I did the AIDS ride um, from San Francisco to Oakland, I mean to LA, I lived in LA. I didn't ride the bike, um, my partner rode a bike, but I did the, um, you know, all the work that it takes to, to make that event happen, riding a bike for, for, you know, raising money for AIDS. So from San Francisco to LA. It was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, physically. I mean, I, it was grueling, actually. And then I did it again the next year. I was like, why am I doing this? But the gift that I received from doing that, when you see those bikers come in every day, and then at the very end, they come, it's very dramatic, they come over this hill in LA, and, and, and it's just this amazing, amazing, and people are working for no money They've taken their vacation time to work their butts off to raise money for a cause and we created this community and it is just the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And the hardest thing, that's what generosity is. That's what it looks like. And I have to say, a friend of mine that I work with, a woman named Jessica Norwood, she posted this on Facebook the other day and, um, you know, there would be no Dharma talk without bringing up Facebook. <laughs> and so um, Jessica, she's a dear, dear friend. We work together. Her mother passed away a year ago, and she wrote this on Facebook. 
When my mom found out she had cancer, she was just about to turn 69 years old. She made a plan to celebrate the days leading up to her big 70th birthday by knitting 70 sweet little newborn hats for babies born way earlier than expected. Preemies. She made 64 hats over that year. She made them on her good days. Days when chemo wasn't draining her and days when her stomach wasn't in so much pain. There were at least 64 good days. That much I know. The night before she passed, she told me to deliver the hats. She wouldn't be able to do it. Now, on the anniversary of her passing, I began to find a deeper understanding inside of my mom's instructions. My mom understood the power of these babies. They came into the world with enough energy from the outset to punch above their weight class. She knew that if these little souls can make it, we can make it too. They are miracles, and I believe in miracles because I've seen them, and I'm claiming miracles, and if you don't know about miracles, stand back. Now's the time to fight like mad, pray without ceasing, and believe with our fullest conviction that tomorrow is ours. Thanks for the reminder, Mom. Mom made these hats the size of the palm of her hands, so these sweeties will always be held by someone who thought of them before they ever arrived. How sweet is that? Generosity of the heart. It is absolutely the antidote to the challenges that we're facing. This is what we can do. This makes a difference. The second one is morality. I said I'm going to talk about the second parami. Living an ethical life is what is at the heart of it. And, you know, it's not always clear what's ethical these days. It's really sometimes I find myself, you know, saying, hey, I have a, you know, calling one of my mentors and saying, help me out here. I'm not sure which way to go, right? It's not always easy. And in the Buddha Dharma, in the Dharma, we have, um, you know, the Eightfold Path, right? From the uh, Four Noble Truths, and the last one is the Eightfold, points towards the Eightfold Path. And in the Eightfold Path, there are different aspects of it, and one of them is the morality aspect. And under that morality aspect is the wise living, wise speech, wise livelihood, sorry, wise speech, and wise action. And so it's about, there in life is a, Abundant opportunities every day, all day long, to make choices. That's all we do. We make choices constantly. And can we make choices from a place of our deepest values? You know in your body when things, when you're off your value course. Something in the body triggers it. And if you pay attention and not override it, that's a trigger. We had um, a beautiful person in the White House a few years ago. Um, and I remember when she said, when they go low, what do we do? We go high. When they go low, we go high. 
That's that moral value. You don't have to go low. It'd be nice to see a little bit of that. So how do we know? The Buddha had a test. The Buddha had a test of morality. And this is, he had a son named Rahula. The Buddha's son was Rahula. And um, he gave this sermon that was called The Advice for Rahula. He said, there are three times a person should consider the consequences of any action. Before, during, and after. (laughs) Right? One should reflect thus, he said, is what I am about to do, or is what I am currently doing, or is what I just did for my own well-being and the well-being of all others? That's the test. Is it for my own well-being and the well-being and benefit of all others? In other words, is it for me and all of us? Right? Imagine, imagine that value leading the world. It would be everything that I named earlier in the dark part of this talk. It wouldn't be there. If we did every action based on, does it, is it for my well-being and the well-being of others? It's profound. The wealth gap, the refugees, the earth. It would be a different story. And I want to talk about this ultimate act of generosity and moral fiber that we have just witnessed. I, um, gosh, I was so moved. I was so moved with those boys in that cave. And I know we all were, I'm sure. It was... It was um, one of the most amazing examples that I have ever seen of the international community coming together. That was incredible. I mean, I cried throughout the whole thing. I was, I don't have a television and um, I haven't had one in decades, but I happened to be in a hotel in back east, and when the boys first came out, and I I saw it on my phone, and I said, oh, there's a television, let me see it, and I did, and it was just, I sat there and just, you know, just tears, and then, you know, they give you little hope and say, you know, it's going to take a while for the next boys, but they beat that time every time, you know then the next group of boys, and then the next group of boys, and the scores of people who made that happen all over the world. I really, I, I, I was reading, um, did, did any of you guys see the actual, I read the account of how they actually did that, step-by-step account. It's incredible the amount of expertise from all these different countries who have decided we're going to get those boys out of that cave. 
divers, engineers, medics, military personnel from all over the world came up and devised that strategy. The Thai Navy divers and SEALs and the one had lost his life. And mindfulness played a big role. How the, their leader, the, the 25-year-old, being an ex-monk who meditated a lot, taught, teaching those boys to meditate, to keep them calm. When they first found them, remember, I don't know if you saw that light, they were sitting there meditating. It was just amazing. Australia, Britain, U.S., Israel, all over Europe, just an entire community. The whole world came together. And what I really think I really think that we needed that. We needed something to happen to say we are human and we have big hearts and we love each other and we care about each other. And that happening up against cages at our borders was just striking. We needed to see who we really are as an international community. Those boys sacrificed, but they gave me a whole lot of hope. They reminded me. And I just cried tears of joy, tears of sorrow. It was extraordinary. Hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. I read where the people in the community, when they realized those boys were in that cave, they saw their bicycles and they, you know, all the calls from the parents, my kid hadn't come home. And they realized the boys were in there. Just the local village brought all this food, you know, just food. They had so much food as people came to help and, you know, they're feeding people and it was just... And they were there for weeks until those boys came out. This is generosity. This is sila, which is the ethics. I mean, it wasn't about how much is this going to cost. The world spent whatever it took to do this rescue mission. Human life came before money. What a beautiful thing. And like I said, I really believe that we needed that. We really needed those boys. They were the catalyst for us to see who we are. Allow that to penetrate into your heart and your psyche. That is who you are. That is who we all are. And this practice, this Dharma practice, 
is about that. Like I said, I mean, you may sit and meditate, and that's really wonderful. Developing our skill set, developing, cultivating our heart and wisdom. But then we go out and we use it in the world. We go out and we use it in the world. We are relational beings. The Buddha, it always was about the benefit of all beings. It wasn't about my own sitting here. And yet there are monastics, which is great. I mean, I always think of monastics as people who are meditating and they're just kind of holding us down, like almost like gravity. Like if they, if we didn't have them wherever they are all over the world, like, you know, I don't know if gravity, if we lift off. But I feel like them as, they're like these places that are holding us down. And they're, the monastic are really important, but most of us are not monastics. We live in the world. And then ours is to be a part of this world, is to take what we're learning, to take the cultivation of our hearts, and to use them, and to use it, to create the world and the society that we really want. David Corton, who is a economist and thought leader, I just read his blog the other day, and in his blog he said, the obvious alternative to that, the mess that I described earlier, the obvious alternative begins with the recognition that individually and collectively, we survive and thrive only as interdependent, sharing, and mutually contributing members of Earth's community of life. We are better served by working together to create a world that works for all, rather than competing for what remains of a shrinking pool of real wealth. Transformation begins with clarity on the nature of the choice and its cultural and institutional implications. Our defining cultural value must become cooperation. And we must transfer power from institutions that reward predatory competition to ones that facilitate and reward cooperation in service to the common good. We make a difference. Our hearts make a difference. And as we cultivate these paramis, one by one, one by one, it changes us. And who we touch and what we do changes. And yes, we can change institutions. We've created them. We can recreate them. They weren't here naturally. We created it. We can uncreate it. We can transfer. We can transform them. And it starts right here. But it doesn't end here. It ends when we all are liberated. When we all are liberated. The Metta Sutta is one of the suttas that the Buddha gave us that I just love. And there's, it's longer, and there's this one piece that I love. Sylvia, who teaches it, I teach with her at the Metta retreat, like Christina said, every January. And 
She always asks people, what's your favorite part of it? What's your favorite part of the sutta? And this is what I love. And so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Why should I give up my nature to love just because it is the nature of the bug to sting? May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for your kind attention. We have um, about five minutes if anybody has any questions. I hope I didn't depress you guys. We have a question here. Can we run the mic in the front? Thank you. Um, It's a request if you could end, if you could close us tonight by repeating the four things that bring us well-being. Sure. The four things that, the, uh, the four pillars of well-being, of wholeness is when we connect with ourselves, purpose, when we connect with our purpose, when we connect with others in real relationship, when we don't isolate, when we've been generous and compassionate, it brings us well-being. And the fourth one is when we connect with something bigger than ourselves, that sense of awe that typically can come from nature or whatever it is that, um, that gives you awe. Those are the four pillars. Thank you for your question. Anyone else? Three minutes? Two minutes? One, you've got it. Over here. Can you bring the mic to this, this, this man over here? Oh, okay. Whoever's doing it? Thank you. Thank you. Um, you talked about uh, it being difficult in this time or in general as a human to know about morality the yeah. test, test of morality uh, the Buddha it sounds like gave the the question of does this help myself and all beings the question I have is uh, what are the ways to cultivate true morality that is not in self-delusion that is not in self-delusion? That is not in a delusional version of that. Right. Meaning, you know, you can hype yourself up to believe whatever you want, but how do you cut through your own self-deception and get to yeah. that place where it's truly meeting the test of the Buddha? 
Yeah, that's a good one. Good question. And, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that we can do, um, taking a lot of the Buddhist teachings and tweak them to work for us, <laughs> right? Without doing the deep dive and really um, what is really meant. And um, so I believe in the body, okay? And that's why with this meditation, with the... Um, you know, I, and, and with, with mindfulness, the first foundation of mindfulness is the body. And I believe that the body tells us everything. So if we can, if through your meditation practice, if you can really start to be aware of your body in the world, not just when you're meditating, the body lets you know there's this, uh, when you are, when we are not being true. Somewhere it exists in the body. And if we can pay attention to that, if we can really develop that skill set, I believe that from that we will know whether or not I'm fooling myself or not. Because the body doesn't lie. So that's my barometer. And as a yoga teacher as well, I'm very in tune to the body, to my body. But the body doesn't lie. And, and it's, it's, it, it shows up there. So that would be my, my guidance. That's how I do it. Is that helpful? Right. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you very much. So happy to see you. And um, get home safely. When you drive out of the parking, you go to the right. Okay, the signs. Even if no cars are coming, go right. Blessings, everyone. Take care. Hope to see you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.